Hello, and welcome back to The Moral Minority. I'm Joel Sam, and I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Luckett. Today, we have a very special guest, Caitlin Shess. Caitlin is a student at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas, where she's working on her THM. And she is soon to be the author of an upcoming book published by Ivy Press called The Liturgy of Politics. We're excited to have her on this show. As you know, we're going through our politics series right now, and we've been talking about this idea of political imagination. How can we challenge Christians to be more creative with their political views, to be more engaged with not only the facts, but the wide swath of ideas that are out there? So, Caitlin, can you um, just take a minute to introduce yourself and let us know what you're passionate about? Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me on. This is really fun to get to talk about this stuff. Um, I, like you said, I'm a student at DTS and my book is coming out on August 25th, The Liturgy of Politics. And the subtitle I really love is Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. And that's really my passion is kind of the intersection of spiritual formation and political engagement and really breaking down why we've put up barriers between theology and politics that really shouldn't be there. Um, So I do a lot of writing on the internet um, and spend way too much time on Twitter, but um, that's really the the heart of my work right now is, is thinking about political theology. And this book for me was a real hope that I could take a lot of the stuff that I've been learning and reading and put it in the hands of people who might not pick up those other books in a really accessible format and maybe introduce, especially pastors and ministry leaders to some ideas about politics that might be new to them. And you did your undergrad at Liberty University, is that correct? I was there from 2012 to 2016. So my first two years were kind of normal, if there could be a normal there. I mean, it wasn't really any different than another Christian college, but my last two years were kind of wild years. I switched from a political science major to a history major just because the department that I was in was becoming really difficult to have any kind of opposing views. And so those last couple of years were just a lot of going to going to convocation three times a week and hearing lots of political speakers and kind of watching our president turn the place that we were trying to get an education into his political platform. And that was that was a big part of my desire to get involved in these conversations for sure. Dang, that's so interesting. It, Liberty's uh, definitely been in the spotlight recently with uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. having students come back um, significantly earlier than they should have. And now students, several students being uh, having contracted the, the virus. Uh, dang, that's intriguing. I, so just right off the bat, like as we've kind of been having a conversation about um, Christians expanding their political imagination. Um, I, I'm curious, um, what are some areas where you see Christian um, political imagination be stagnant um, and kind of surface and vapid um, that you are just noticing and already want to poke into maybe with your book, with your different writings or with your engagements with Christians? Yeah, I love when I saw that 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 phrase was one that y'all were talking about, uh, political imagination, because very a lot of the time we tend to think of politics, as you've said, as just here's the policies, here's the people to vote for, here's the parties, instead of what is the overall holistic vision that we have for what it means for a community to flourish. And 
there's actually a chapter in the book. It was the last one that I wrote. It's not the last one in the book, but I changed it multiple times and kept going over it and trying to figure out what made the most sense. And I literally ended up taking a paper I wrote in a class last semester on Augustine and kind of modifying it and putting it in the book because I felt that his, I mean, a foundational character in Christian theology, but also in political theory and most of the West had, you know, significant contributions. But one of the ones I thought we were really missing was this idea that what really should be motivating our work in the world is a vision for what the city of God, the kingdom of God looks like. Mm -hmm. And he pointed out, I think this chapter kind of looks at both um, city of God and confessions because confessions has so much to do with what it means to continue living in a sinful world, to have been Mm -hmm. redeemed by God, but still be in this in-between time. And so looking at both of those works and saying, what are constraints on our political imagination? And a couple of the ones that I talk about that I think are significant are um, an overriding pragmatism. And so us kind of going, what are the what are the political objectives we can have that will be the most successful? Or what? how do we need to compromise or modify certain things so that they can be successful? And what I think Augustine does so well is recognizing that we can't really make judgments like that from the perspective that we have now, those things will be judged in light of eternity. And so a court case that fails or a piece of legislation that doesn't pass, we might not be able to tell now what our work to pass that or to fight that case that seemed unsuccessful, whether it was really valuable and meaningful in light of eternity. Um, Similarly, how we can tend to kind of say, well, here's the most significant or important things politically right now. So um, I remember in 2016, one of the biggest things was like, this is the most important election of our lifetime. And it's just like, until you've lived your whole lifetime, you can't know that. You don't know what the most important is. Um, And so it's just, and so part of what Augustine talks about is that we don't have this ability to have the kind of overall, overall perspective on all of history to say, here's the most important things. You know, we can't say Obama is the antichrist. There's lots of really reasons why that's horrible to say, but also Mm -hmm. you don't have the perspective to make judgments like that. You're not God Mm -hmm. and he hasn't revealed those things to you. And so trying to say, Mm -hmm. well, this is the most important election for the Supreme court, or it's the most important election for, you know, this policy or for abortion or whatever is to take a perspective on history that we can't really have. We can say that certain things are valuable or important or significant, but to kind of say that they're the most important constrains our options, because if this is the most important, nothing else matters. Um, It kind of reminds me when I was at Liberty, I was a debater and college policy debate has this um, construct about it where all of your impacts, the bad things that you're trying to, you know, you say a policy causes economic decline or it causes a regional war. None of those impacts are big enough by the way that we do debate. And so they always have to escalate further and further until they come to global nuclear war. And that's how all these debates happen. And sometimes we can do that in our political thinking where everything has been escalated to this such extreme point that our options are constrained. Because if global nuclear war is coming, like, what are you going to do but stop that global nuclear war from coming? And so when we have that kind of catastrophic apocalyptic thinking that constrains our political imagination. We can't be as creative with our local politics or with, you know, a third option to different things. Cause it's just mm-hmm. everyone either dies or lives. And those are the only options. Um, and, and I think the last thing that was in this chapter about constraining political imagination is just this idea that 
the policies that we support and the politicians that we support, the parties that we support are never just those things. Really, when we're going to become politically involved, that takes a lot of motivation. It's hard work. And the only way that you can really get people to be that involved is to tell them a captivating story that plays to their emotions, their desires, their fears, their loyalties. And so when we've bought into certain stories, whether we realize it or not, those stories constrain our political action. When I have bought into a certain loyalty or a certain fear, that constrains my political imagination from operating against those I'm supposed to be loyal to, or on behalf of those I'm not supposed to be loyal to, or against this fear or for this desire. And so being able to articulate and see the stories that are forming us and going, how can I Yes, I will be inevitably, because of the world we live in, shaped by those stories. But how can I prevent them from constraining my political imagination to finding more creative solutions to problems? Dang, that's so good. Uh, both of those pieces were um, incredibly powerful. I, I, like, it, like imagine um, someone, you know, having no idea the firestorm of the civil rights movement that was coming in the fifties and sixties. Um, saying that something that was happening earlier was like, oh, this is the biggest moment ever. This is the biggest moment. And uh, crazy enough, that whole 60-year span in the early 20th century with two world world wars and then uh, massive cultural change, someone maybe could have legitimately said each of those moments was the biggest of their lifetime. But yeah, I, I love that piece of just like, that makes no sense to make everything so apocalyptic and so like um, incredibly important to the eschaton um, that it, it, in many ways, like you said, strains strains a political imagination. And then that second piece is really powerful because I think the reason that Christians in particular um, get so baited into um, kind of this, like these really strong narratives that you were talking about towards the end is we normally get our political information because we don't talk about it in church because that's off limits. We can make some weird strategies like Jerry Falwell Jr. is definitely um, going to strategically work to get Republicans in office. Um, so there's strategies that go on, but we don't talk about it theologically in church. And so we have to get our political commentary from very biased, um, very establishment media sources. Uh, that really distort things and really create this nasty um, negative relationship between people with the fear narratives, with the, um, oh, if this person doesn't end up on the Supreme Court, who knows what the generation for your grandkids will look like. And just that long, nasty diatribe um, is, uh, like you said, just so unhealthy. Um, and so also, I guess, the the next thing that like would love for you to kind of dig into is when you were thinking of the title of the book um what made you put those two pieces liturgy and politics together how, what made you put those two together and how do you see kind of uh how do you see that working as far as like us viewing politics in a more liturgical fashion yeah. Um, 
admittedly, when the, when they proposed this particular title to me, I kind of thought, oh, those are two words that people have strong opinions about. So I hope that that, you know, makes them pick it up. Um, and the combination is kind of provocative. Um, so that's good. Yeah. But, but really, part of the heart of the book is that there are all sorts of liturgies that we engage in, in church and outside of church, that we have habitual patterns of things that we do with our bodies that teach us things that are deeper than we can maybe learn cognitively. So I go to a Sunday school class at church and I learn information. It's very uh, propositional. Someone stands at the front and tells me things and I, you know, think about them or write them down and I've learned information. Um, I don't know about y'all, but I forget a large amount of that information that someone tells me if I, especially if I'm bored or, you know, I've heard this before, or I don't think it's that relevant to my life. You know, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other, but the things that we do in church, like communion and baptism and liturgies where we're all saying the same thing at the same time, maybe every week, the Lord's prayer, um, the creeds, those are things that there's something more, more deep happening because I'm using my body, I'm doing it in community and it's repetitive. And so, uh, one of my favorite people that talks about this a lot is James K. Smith. And he'll talk about how there's kind of strong and weak liturgies. There's things like brushing your teeth every day. That's a repetitive action I do with my body which is all of those elements that are important. And it teaches me something about the health of my teeth and the importance of taking care of myself. And, but if like there was a report on the news tonight that said, Hey, brushing your teeth isn't actually healthy. You should stop doing it. It might take a little while for me to stop that, you know, ritual or that liturgy, but it wouldn't take that long. Cause it's kind of, it, it happens every day, but it's not that meaningful. But yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if I say the Lord's prayer in my community, standing up and sitting down, you know, if I do that kind of thing every single week, that's a stronger, richer liturgy because it's dealing with, you know, really huge issues. It's dealing with my faith. It's dealing with my community. Um, it's telling me about who God is and who I am and the story that should shape my life. And so those are really strong things. Interestingly enough, our political participation often looks very much like that. It deals with really big issues of what is the most important good? Who are my people and who are not? What should I be orienting my life towards? And I often do it in ways that are weirdly religious, right? If you go to a political rally, there is sort of an altar call sometimes, you know? There's a moment you're supposed to respond. You're there with a lot of people. It's sort of a ritualistic thing. There's community. There's some, usually there's like a chant, you know? You wear clothes that show your support for some. There's all of these very embodied things that you yeah. do together. And they're very... Powerful things. You know, I have family members that I think of who watch Fox News every single night. And it's not just that they do it every single night, it's that the way that that form of media operates is not just by giving information, it's by appealing to your fears or your desires, to your loyalties, to a certain story of how the world is and what's really wrong with it and who will save it. And all of those things are so strong that it's really hard for the church to say, okay, well, we want to start talking about politics. So let's take these people who have been so strongly formed by political liturgies and stick them in a classroom and read a bunch of Bible verses and tell them this is the truth about how things work. And then act surprised when Fox News is discipling them more than we are. It's because we're not appealing to who, to how humans actually were intended to work. We were made to be desiring, loving, affective creatures, which is something else Augustine talks about. And so our ultimate defining feature is what we love. That's what we're drawn towards. That's how 
we're motivated to work. And so the the reason I think those two things need to be so connected is not just because I think the liturgies of the church have political significance, which I think they do, but also because we're really missing something if we don't think that our congregations are being formed in a very spiritual way by their political participation. So even if you don't think there's a role for the church in talking about politics, which I think is mistaken, but even if you think that, it's not that they're not being discipled politically. You're just outsourcing that political discipleship to someone else, and you have no idea what they're going to be doing with it. You know, one definition of the word liturgy I've heard is work of the people. And we can think about that really clearly in this context. Um, You talked about being discipled by a major news network. Is that, you know, these liturgies that we're participating in, we can ask the question, are they works of the people or are they works of a certain subset of people? And I think what we lose in evangelical traditions that are not very liturgical is that the majority of people are not participating in the worship, except maybe through singing and the, you know, once a quarter communion. But when you look at liturgical churches, the average member is participating in a more vocal and um, physical sense. And though many of them take communion every week, many of them, there's a lot of like sitting and standing. There's these creeds that are spoken more regularly with greater frequency and they're often smaller. And so it's more likely that an average typical member is serving. And so a lot of these characteristics of liturgical churches enable the typical member to be more participatory. And maybe using that analogy, do you think that's an appropriate analogy for how to make the political landscape more a work of the people rather than a work of the news networks? Yeah. And one of the things that I've become increasingly convinced of is that the more that we are focused locally, both in terms of politics and in terms of our church, Weirdly enough, the more aware we are of our connection globally and historically to the church. So typically, people who their church sort of has this ethos, a lot of, you know, low, free evangelical churches can kind of have this of like, we just popped up out of nowhere, our pastor in a Bible, here we are, you know, we're not connected to anything else, can be really um, uninterested in our global brothers and sisters around the world or the historic church and the way that they have typically worshipped. And yet churches like you've described that are more focused locally, who are um, you know, aware of every member of their church, that have a lot more loyalty to those group of people, also, strangely enough, tend to care more about the global church and also tend to care more about the historic connections because they know where they've come from. And their specific local yeah. church is very important, but it also is one piece of a larger story that they're aware of. And that larger story involves work of not just the celebrity pastor or the kind of CEO pastor that kind of runs things, but the work of everyone that's involved. Mm -hmm. And I think, like I said earlier, politically is the same sort of thing. Like I really want to have a broader perspective than just the things that matter to me. But I found that the more that I become involved in the political issues that matter to my local community, the more that I learn empathy for people in other situations, because I'm aware of, at least in my space, here's what's going on. I can't be really distanced from it, even though I have some privilege in the area that I live in that I could be distanced from it if I chose to. And so one of the things that I've become passionate about is encouraging churches who are very perplexed over how to deal with the national political issues, and they should be because they're difficult, 
but, and they should still deal with those issues. They should educate themselves. They should learn how to think about weighing different issues and caring about a more holistic way of thinking about politics. But also they should learn to be thinking about the local issues close to them where they can actually do work, (laughs) where they can be involved, not just in posting on Facebook or fighting on the internet or, you know, watching cable news and learning things. Those are not necessarily bad things. But like you said, there's something significant about them being involved with, hey, locally, there is, you know, a community center down the street from me that provides so many local services to vulnerable people in my community. And I was unaware of the regulations involved with how they get funded that are all political questions that when I go to vote, you know, in the primaries that I just voted in, the thing that I spent most of my time thinking about because of the internet and cable news was who am I voting for in the Democratic primary? When the people who are judges and on the you know school board, all of those people have such significant power over the most vulnerable people in my community, and I could be very you know actually involved in the work of doing that, but that's not usually the way that we tend to think about politics. Yeah, that's really good. I, that so I um, right currently I'm transitioning out of it and moving to a new job in Dallas, but I currently. Um, lead a ministry that um, gets college students from A&M to come and disciple um, young um, at-risk or under-resourced um, students in the Bryan College Station area. Um, and what's always incredibly intriguing is I spend um, every Sunday, we have like Sunday night teaching. Every Thursday, I teach um, the middle school and high school students that I work with, and also, um, by extension, the college leaders that are sitting next to them. And, you know, I constantly talk about issues of systemic injustice, wealth inequality, um, the vulnerable, the poor, always, of course, pulling from scripture and showing how the Bible constantly have a, has a heart and redirects people towards the poor. And it never fails. Uh, my leaders, um, and if you're listening to this, one of my leaders, I love you. Um, but they always like are like, oh, I don't know about that. Oh, I don't know. And then eventually, as time goes along, as they're engaged with these kids, engaged with these families, it never fails. All of a sudden, it's, you know, they become some of the most passionate um, uh, defenders of justice and fighters for the vulnerable. You just give them like two years in the ministry and all of a sudden, like they're championing the stuff and I'm having to like slow them down. Um, and so that's so true that like, as people get exposed to things, it completely changes, um, how we think when we go to the voting booth, how we think when we hear stuff about politics online. And quite frankly, what I've learned is, and I think I'm a decent teacher, but let's be honest, as there's, I can't, I can't stir up those affections. Um, eventually I can only do so much work and people are just going to have to get exposed. Um, to got that to that kind of stuff, and so that that's so powerful that you do that. That that's how you kind of mobilize churches to care more about those issues. So I follow you on Twitter, um, which is a treat. Anyone should do it. Um, and one of the cool things that you said, I think it was maybe a week and a half ago, um, was that you are too um, conservative for liberals and too liberal for conservatives. Um, somehow. Um, you try to strike that balance uh, that everyone's trying to figure out. Um, and uh, so I'm curious, what does that look like for you? And uh, and and how do you encourage 
um, people to maybe even see that from a biblical perspective of how we should navigate in between those two spectrums. Yeah, I think it's it's funny because the space that I'm in now um, at my seminary, I get labeled and I know I get labeled because I hear it from people's mouths, <laughs> a liberal, which apparently is like the worst thing you can say about someone is like, a liberal. Um, and it's so funny to me because I always want to like, I don't do this because it would be bad, but I want to stop them and be like, could you like define your terms here? Like, what do you mean by that? And also I would really like to introduce you to some actual liberals who would define themselves that way because they deny the, you know, literal death and resurrection of Christ or, yeah, you know, the virgin like, birth right. or whatever, <laughs> like they exist and they're lovely people. So I don't actually want to introduce you to them because you'd probably be a jerk, but like they exist <laughs> and I am not them, you know, it's just, being in the space that I'm in now, I feel like the liberal because I care a lot about um, issues of justice, about racism, about sexism. Um, and I think Christians should be involved politically in ways that are not the kind of typical moral majority sort of ways. And so that puts you in a certain right. category. But then on Twitter, I have found those people who care about issues of justice and care about sexism and racism. And they tend to be in a different place than I am theologically. And so I'll talk to them and suddenly be like, oh, I'm the conservative here. <laughs> like, I really, you know, I think scripture was inspired by God and all of it is fruitful for our living. And Jesus really did live and die and rise again. And, you know, there is an actual judgment at the end of the world. and <laughs> There will be a redeemed creation that is literal. And, um, and so I, I think the thing that's really brought me to that place the most is being in seminary and studying scripture more than I ever have in my life and not really having changed a lot of the hermeneutical principles that I learned growing up, but suddenly stumbling onto all of these passages about justice and caring for the poor and the marginalized and going, why did none of you tell me about any of this? And also, why are you so mad that I'm taking it seriously? You taught me to, to read scripture this way. And I'm taking it seriously. It's literal and it matters and it puts an obligation on us. And suddenly you're acting like I'm liberal because I took the hermeneutical tools you gave me and applied them to passages that you don't like as much. You know, James literally says, woe to the rich, you know, like it's serious stuff. Um, but people are selective in the way they do that. And I recognize that I am too. You know, I have biases that impact the way that I read scripture where there's things that I take more or less seriously because of the position that I'm in and the you know place that I am culturally and historically. But I think if there's anything that I've learned in seminary, it's that instead of kind of ignoring that, what matters is learning the biases of the place that you're in by reading from all of the history of the church and going, this stuff sounds weird. Maybe it's not because they're weird. Maybe it's because I'm weird. <laughs> you know, where are the things that have changed throughout time and where are the things that have stayed the same? And if you find yourself in a place where some of the things that have always stayed the same, like really caring about the poor and marginalized, if that stuff that's always stayed the same makes you weird now, I can live with that. <laughs> so a question that kind of naturally arises from that is the question of how did we get here? Um, what do you think it is? What do you think are the driving forces that establish these spectrums like perhaps the left-right spectrum theologically and the left-right spectrum in the current American political landscape, what do you think are the driving forces behind constructing those spaces? And on to, in response to that, how can we construct spaces that have a greater level of imagination? How can we look at these, you know, for those of us who feel 
homeless politically or maybe homeless theologically or ecclesiologically, how can we construct creative spaces that value what Christ actually did and said, but also value the work of the kingdom manifesting itself through the government that we exist in nowadays? Mm, yeah, that's a lot. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's a really complicated, uh, question. Um, to answer the first part of it, it's, there's so much historically that we can look to, to kind of see how specifically white evangelicals got to the place that, that we are now. Um, but Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's been really interesting to me, again, you can't, it's so hard. There's not really a place to start, right? You could start, you know, with Constantine and the way that like empire got, you know, or you could start, you know, the closest to now you could start as like Jerry Falwell senior moral majority kind of stuff. But I do think that to, to be really specific to where we are now, I think a lot of it comes from a fight to maintain cultural power that was waning during the sexual revolution and not knowing what to do if we weren't in a certain position of power. And um, there's a great episode of uh, pass the mic that Andy Crouch was on. And he talks about how there was sort of this uh, deal made, not explicitly because there's no, you know, governing party of white evangelical, there's no, no one leader, but sort of a, a deal that was made with um, the GOP when it came to kind of evangelical saying, protect these social things that we care about and we'll give you support on the economic foreign policy type of things. And he explains it in terms of idolatry. And he basically says, this is how all idols work, right? In the beginning, you say, okay, I'll sacrifice to you and you'll give me these things that I want. But over Mm -hmm. time, slowly what happens is the sacrifices are bigger and bigger. The the idol requires more and more from you and it gives you less and less, but you're so hooked Mm -hmm. that you keep giving it to it. And so there were some things that evangelicals, I think, thought they could retain some cultural power by sort of aligning themselves so closely with the GOP But what has happened is is not that, right? A lot of the things that they said were going to happen culturally when it came to sexuality or abortion have happened anyway. And some of that's because not all of that is government. Some of that's cultural, the media, things that are not all kind of, it's not all the same power center. But so we've Mm -hmm. kind of lost those fights that some people think we kind of got in for those reasons and have sacrificed a lot, including getting to this point where certain foreign policy and economic positions are seen as inherently Christian when they can actually be the opposite of what is most theologically valid. And so mm-hmm. it's really, that part's really complicated, but I do think to answer the second part about how we kind of, you know, get ourselves out of that. I honestly think, and part of this could just be being a seminary student. And so we read a lot of stuff, but I really do think that learning our history, not just our own history. I mean, that's been significant for me to learn the history of evangelicals in America Um, but also to learn more about the whole history of the global church. And like I said earlier, to go, okay, this little strange place (laughs) that we are is so small compared to the global historic church. It's it's Mm -hmm. unbelievable how small it actually is. And so reading not only more history going, you know, how have Christians throughout the history of the world fought injustice or, you know, thought theologically about these issues, But then also going, you know, sometimes we can do history in a very linear way where it's, you know, what have my type of people throughout all of history done, but then broadening that scope and going, what have Christians all over the world done for a really long time, which like we said before, is kind of strange because it doesn't create a specific new space for us. But I do think it helps us orient ourselves because I don't fully want 
to take myself out of the history of white evangelicals because I feel some responsibility for the place that I am, the privilege that I have, Mm -hmm. but also just, these are my people. (laughs) I'm not going to just go, someone else can deal with them. You know, like I feel some responsibility to the type of churches and seminaries and schools that I've been in. These are my people. And I don't think it's best serving the world for me to kind of go, oh, I'm not like them. I think what would best serve the world is for me to learn the history of my particular location and then also situating that more broadly and helping hopefully the people in my location also situate themselves more broadly and learn from traditions outside of themselves. That's really good. That's really good. You know, I, I was, uh, it's interesting. Um, I've in the midst of this pandemic, like there have been a lot of people who have been like, man, um, I wonder what the church can do to like look different or look exceptional during this time period. And while I totally agree that like, as you know, we've seen throughout church history where um, there have been segments of Christians that have handled um, pandemics really well and been a blessing to the people around them, even at the sacrifice of their own lives. One of the things I've challenged some Christians I've heard say that with recently is like, hey, like before you think, how can we get ahead of the world and how can we be like um, the example or how about you just stop for a second and look and see maybe there's some movements that are happening that are secular, um, but that are really, really encouraging and how you can um, see what they're doing and say, they're not even believers and they can step into that. Imagine what we can do if we truly embrace um, the teachings and the model of Christ. One of the movements that I have been so encouraged by recently is kind of this young movement of college students mostly, but like, I guess, kind of early millennial and Z generation. And it's the Justice Democrats. Um, and they have kind of been the real strong force behind Bernie Sanders. And essentially what they did was like kind of what you were saying, Caitlin, they looked back to FDR and his kind of his hybrid system of capitalism and socialism and how that had so many great benefits for, uh, for people in the midst of a economic depression and how it's continued to be super beneficial in stuff like Social Security and things like that. And they said, hey, like, um, we're, we're not going to stay within this binary view of like Democrats and Republicans. Like, we believe that there needs to be like a system that like really cares for the poor and working class people. And they didn't get trapped in kind of the binary thing. And how powerful would it be if Christians could look at that and say, you know what, we're not going to be trapped in the binary Democrat Republican thing either. Um, we're going to challenge ourselves to do exactly what you just said, Caitlin. Let's look throughout church history. Let's look at what's happening in Christianity around the world, and let's make our define our own terms and have our own political imagination and force one of these parties um, to bend to our will for the sake of human flourishing, not for the sake of power, like uh, like you were mentioning with the with the moral majority, not for the sake of sacrificing some of our ethics. But for the sake of like, hey, no, we we want to see society um, work best for people uh, to where people aren't dying or people aren't being hurt or they're vulnerable or looked out for. And this is our political imagination to see that happen. And my goodness, how how powerful um, would that be for the world to see the church um, take a step and say, no, we have a political imagination and neither one of these parties adhere to it. And we're going to challenge one of these parties if they want our votes, if they want our support. Um, 
to to adhere to that political imagination. I'm curious what and and I'm curious. I, so I work at a Bible church. I really don't know the answer to this question, even though I work at a Bible church and I'm very familiar with DTS. What would you say uh, is DTS's like current political imagination, um, and and how how would you like to see it evolve, or where do you see areas where it's um, pretty healthy and can um, and can can just continue to build on some of the healthy things that already exist? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things I'll start with something positive. <laughs> um, one of the things that that is encouraging to me about this place that I'm in that is um, a place that I love dearly and that is strange and impacted by its own. You know, it exists in its own history and context, and um, and spends a lot of time trying to show people that it's not some of the things that it historically has been. And um, so, one of the things that's encouraging to me about what it's like here is one that we have such a large amount of international students. And so the perspective that, you know, the school generally has and the conversations that we're having, it's really rare that we can have a, a super myopic like conversation about just these really, it's, it's, it's rare that you can assume everyone kind of knows American history and American politics. And, and that is a, I think, surprisingly refreshing thing to have, to be able to have conversations where for me, watching some of my peers trying to explain certain dynamics of American history, American politics to someone that doesn't know it, you can almost see sometimes in someone's face the moment that they go, oh, that's so messed up, <laughs> you know, or like that history is bad or like something. It's just it's like seeing it from someone else's perspective is really helpful. Um and I will say part of our, we have to do a two-year spiritual formation curriculum in little groups. And so I've been in a group the last two years that's almost entirely international students. I think I'm the only, I'm the only person who grew up in an American church. They either didn't grow up in a church or they didn't grow up in an American church. And, um, and a lot of that curriculum deals with how does your particular location influence the way that you think about the world? How does it influence your theology? How does it influence your ministry and vocation? Um, and so those conversations, I think, are really, that's part of what it means to think about political theology, is to think about theology contextually. How, it's, how is it influenced by the government that you're under, the social position that you have, the kind of dynamics that are constraining or allowing you know, political action? And so that's encouraging. Um, but I think what's difficult here, which is true not just of here, but of most evangelical spaces right now, is that people are trying to figure out what to do post-2016. And some people have really woken up to like, how did we get here? I mean, I didn't really contribute to it. A lot of people are thinking because they're in their, you know, 20s. But like, what happened with my parents? And how did that, you know, how have we gotten collectively where we are? And those conversations are happening. But then I think one of the responses to that is for a lot of people to go, okay, well, when I'm in ministry, I'm just not going to deal with it. Because clearly it's volatile. It's dangerous. Maybe we should just, let's just get back to the gospel all on its own, you know, the, the true gospel. And that is what mostly concerns me about the kind of political ethos here is that we just don't talk about a lot of things. And so we've had a few conversations in some of my classes that will go down that kind of route, but it's pretty quick that someone will pull us back. And I think people are just afraid, some for good reasons of going, I don't want to be taken captive the way I feel like my parents, grandparents' generation was taken captive and really idolized 
some certain political leaders and parties and they, they are far gone, you know, and feeling like, how do I stop early that from happening? Well, here's how I do it. I just don't get involved politically. Um, Instead of recognizing that there are significant things we need to do to change the way we think about politics, but not that the thing itself is sort of mucky, dirty, lower, and we should just elevate ourselves above that kind of material ick and have a more spiritual perspective on things. And so that that's one of the things that's hard, especially for people who want to go into ministry. A lot of you know people that want to be pastors or work in you know a parachurch ministry, to them they think it would be easier if I just didn't talk about it or didn't think about it. And so that's where I wish that we would be pushing in a little more to go. The gospel has seriously social material implications. And if you're not, like I said before, if you're not discipling your church towards those things that the gospel shows we are supposed to be working towards, someone else will come along and disciple them in another way. And then it will be really hard for you to go back and and unlearn some of those things. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel like that was really helpful. Can we, can you maybe give some examples of how many of us who are kind of in this position of feeling torn between all these voices and feeling like, yes, the gospel of the kingdom is so powerful and it has all of these social implications and I want to be politically educated and I want to be politically involved, but it feels like such a daunting task because the systems are so complicated and structured that it's difficult to stem the tide. It's difficult to be outside of a certain um, binary system. And there's a, it takes a lot of work. It honestly really does take a lot of work to do good, healthy exegesis of the text, to be involved, to, to even find communities of people who are taking the intersection between uh, theology and politics really seriously and, and doing so in you know, what, what we, we may consider a healthy way. It's hard to find those people, especially in the South or the Bible Belt. Um, either maybe you find people who are political, but not necessarily theo- theological or theological, but not necessarily political. Um, so it's difficult to get all the information. It's difficult to stay up to date with all the issues that are going on. Um, it's hard to find community to do that alongside, even on Twitter, as you've mentioned earlier. Um, it can be discouraging. How can we take actionable steps, you know, in our everyday lives on the order of months, even in, how can we take those steps to grow in this area and to hopefully to see fruit and not to kind of feel overwhelmed or discouraged by all that is seems to be required? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and that was, as I said earlier, part of my heart writing this book was going, I want to just hand people like a giant stack of books. They don't have time <laughs> to read all of those books. Um, I will say um, as sort of like a quick answer, there's a couple of books that I would really recommend. One is James K. Smith, um, Awaiting the King, which is a work of political theology. That one's a little dense and philosophical, so that might not be for everyone. One of my favorites that's very accessible, but will look intimidating because it's huge, um, is Luke Brotherton's um, For the Common Life. I think it's called For the Common Life. Um, It's the bigger one, most recent one, um, that are great examples to me because part of what I think we have to learn to do is read some of those people doing that work and going, what is it that they do when they look at this passage of scripture that helps them come to these insights. Because I feel like ever since I started reading all these people, now when I open my Bible, I'm going through Luke 
for, uh, for my job at the church. I opened my Bibles at the very beginning of Luke. There's the Magnificat. There's Jesus, you know, quoting Isaiah for his mission. And suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, this mission that, that Mary is talking about, that Jesus is talking about is all about material flourishing in the world under mm-hmm. rulers and how God thinks yeah. about authority. And suddenly I'm like, okay, Ooh. this is an opportunity for us to talk about, you know, I taught on Sodom and Gomorrah uh, a few weeks ago. I always kind of thought I knew what that, what that meant. You know, it's kind of a strange story. It's very sad. Suddenly realizing, oh, the way it's situated in Genesis and really what it's talking about is how nations treat foreigners and how God judges nations by how they treat foreigners. And all of these things that, that commentators might be hinting at or talking about, but a lot of the time, because as we've said, we have a stunted political imagination, especially the last you know, few decades of American evangelicalism, a lot of that stuff is missing. And so I think I would recommend finding something that feels doable to read, a good work of political theology that's recent, and then having that hopefully help you as you read scripture. The other thing I would say is, I think what seems so daunting, at least to the people I talk about in my context about politics, is like you said, there's so many issues, they have no idea how to weigh all of them. And it feels like you have to do so much research to just get started. And I, the thing that I've been telling the people around me is start local. That seems counterintuitive, but there's just something about tangibly learning about the needs of your community that will change then how you think about national issues. If you know the most vulnerable people in your community, you're more likely to vote with vulnerable people in mind in general when you're voting at a national election than if you have no connection to the local politics around you. Um, and also to find there really are in the age of the internet, there are incredible resources to help you think yeah. through a ballot. So if you go to like the Women's Voters League or some local papers will do a sample ballot. When I have said, and this is something I would encourage church leaders to do, I sent my whole ministry at the church a Texas or a Women's Voters League guide, a local um, Texas newspaper's uh, sample ballot. And none of this is partisan. It's not saying, you know, vote for this person or what. It's just they've asked the candidates all these questions. Here's all their answers. And just saying, hey, this is just a few pages. If you read this stuff, like you can just, you can take it with you. You can bring notes. <laughs> you can write down who the people are that you like and bring it to the voting booth with you and write, you know. And it, it seems like a lot of work. It seems really daunting. But if you start with, okay, this election, I'm going to download these few pages, read these few things and start there. And I might get to an issue with a candidate and go, I don't know what I think about this particular type of criminal justice reform or this economic policy or whatever. But at the very least, I have all of the answers on all of these issues and I can kind of learn enough to know how to vote. And now at least I have some familiarity with those issues. So as I hear people talking about them or I see articles about them, I can start learning but just kind of going, starting with this, this local example, knowing you will do it imperfectly. I think a lot of people are afraid that if they like vote for the wrong person or they like get, you know, they have the wrong answer. It feels like a test going and voting to take off some of that pressure and to go, you're doing your best. I would encourage you to pray. The Holy Spirit is real and works in your life, but to know that you have some responsibility to do some educating of yourself and it's really easy if you're if you're just willing to look for the information yeah no, that's really good i i uh i i would also encourage like don't I, I this sounds extreme but just straight up don't get your political information from fox msnbc or cnn i mean like they honestly are just establishment media um there's huge corporations funding what they do and they're very partisan on purpose. 
Um, and I would encourage, I kind of said this on the first episode we did this series, but like there's a lot of independent um, people on the internet who do great political commentary and there's no strings attached to what they're doing. I mean, of course they, they get some kind of monetary, um, I mean, they're, they're, they gotta eat. Um, but for the most part, I mean, they're literally just giving their political opinion from a, a pretty, um, like policy based understanding. And it's just, those are just really helpful things to, to start to grasp like the language, even if it's from a secular level. Um, uh, but you know, I, I know, you, I know you said, uh, that this is impossible for people to do is like, just read all these books. Um, but there are people who are just writing great stuff. Like I think Russell Moore, um, so I grew up in the South in, uh, like deep South, like Mississippi. Um, and, uh, and Russell Moore is the president of, uh, the religious, Ooh, I never know how to say it. There it is. There's so much. It's like a word sandwich. Uh, so he's the president of that for the Southern Baptist. And uh, he just does such an incredible job of articulating um, uh, from a Southern Baptist perspective, a really healthy understanding of how to engage the world with the gospel. Jim Wallace is also a really good source. He's wrote some a couple of great books on that. Um, uh, uh, a scholar that I've been into recently, is, I don't know if he's a believer, but Ibram Kendi, um, Dr. Ibram Kendi has written some great stuff to help us think through um, policy from a critical race theory um, kind of perspective. Um, and there's just, there's just so much good stuff out there that Christians are missing out on and getting all of their stuff from MSNBC, CNN, and Fox. And I'm just like, that is some of the most vapid surface stuff ever. Like, please don't get your, even, even like, understanding a policy from there like there's so many great spaces to get stuff from so i i would encourage people people take some take some risk there and, and go to some like you said caitlin some some different sources i'm curious like so you you wrote a book it's coming in is it august august 25th um kind of like what what are like some of your future endeavors as like a minister of the gospel like what what are you kind of is that is that kind of your mo or are you, are you gonna are you gonna crank out books like mt riot or like what what's kind of what's kind of your future as a as a minister yeah um i jokingly messaged one of my profs here who's helped me a lot through this and i said don't ever let me do this again like just stop me <laughs> um and she not kidding she said well you'll write a dissertation first before the next one so just fine um, so that, that really is, I really would like to continue studying, particularly political theology. Um, it's a really interesting world, uh, you know, the political theology world, because on one hand you have more evangelical institutions that really don't touch it, right? It's rare to find people who are really studying that stuff in those spaces. And then you have more, you know, mainline kind of non-evangelical spaces in which political theology can tend to mean something very different. It's not as theologically grounded as I would like it to be. And so um, kind of going through that right now, looking into doctoral programs and trying to decide what what the right thing would be, um, God willing, I don't know. Um, but I'm really passionate about not only staying, I love the local church work that I'm doing right now, but my real joy would be to empower students. Um, I Some of the things that I love doing the most right now are particularly working with women seminary students 
and being the one to say like, keep working, there will be jobs, <laughs> like, you know, keep studying. It, it, it doesn't matter that it seems really impossible. Like God will, will value the work that you're doing. So keep going. So I would really love to be in some kind of context where I could encourage women to go to seminary, um, to continue in seminary, to do work in the church. Um, but also the reason political theology specifically, because I just think a lot of the churches that most need people to be well-grounded in that are the same places that are not training people at all in that. And so really just, I have no aspirations to make some grand academic contribution, but I do think I'm not done asking the questions that I care the most about. And so, um, that would be the, I mean, the real goal honestly would just be to stay in school forever, but I don't know that they will let me. So we'll see. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we don't want you to starve either. Um, (laughs) you know, one thing, one thing we kind of touched on, um, Caitlin, you mentioned this idea of participating in local government. Um, I would also encourage people to expand their local conversations. And what that, what I mean by that is when you're having political conversations with your friends on, you know, just at a meal or something casual, um, I would encourage people to diversify the people they're having those conversations with. I think a lot of times I observe that Christians end up in political conversations with other Christians because there's sometimes a level of safety there. And a lot of times those Christians are from their same theological tribe. And so in those situations, you can observe a lack of diversity of thought and a lack of innovation. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons we're just not getting that political imagination. But I have found that the most kind of interesting political conversations that I've had have been with my friends who are not Christians. Um, maybe my friends who are LGBTQ or my, or like you mentioned earlier, international students. Um, if we diversify the types of people that we have these political conversations with, And we introduce them to the concepts of, hey, like, so I come from this Christian tradition where we follow Jesus and we, and Jesus, you know, came to earth with a mission that had a lot of different dimensions, some of which was spiritual, some of which was social. Um, And we, we engage in those conversations and maybe another person says, well, I don't have this religious tradition, but here's what really matters to me politically. Um, I think if we have diversity in our conversations and diversity in our conversation partners, we can empower one another to cultivate a political imagination. And I think, you know, just like you said, like movements don't come out of nowhere. Like movements start slow. You know, there have been times in American history where maybe some um, bipartisan or some partisan structure has been upended due to a growing movement saying, hey, we need a third way or we need a different way. And so, um, yeah, those are just some ideas I had in terms of diversifying that space. Caitlin, thanks so much for being on the show. How can our listeners uh, follow you? Um, How can they keep up with your work and engage with you online? Yeah, thanks. Um, I spend way too much time on Twitter, so you can find me at Twitter, um, (laughs) at Caitlin Chess. And um, yeah, you can pre-order the Liturgy of Politics right now from Amazon, or I would prefer from uh, the publisher or from another um, source that is not Amazon. Um, But you can do that right now, which pre-orders are really important, especially for first-time authors. So that's um, a great way to make sure that you get it right when it comes out. 
Great. Well, thanks so much, Caitlin. And as always, you've been listening to The Moral Minority. Thanks for listening. We'd love for you to engage with us. Let us know what you think about this episode or the series that we're on. Shoot us an email at themoralminorityshow at gmail.com. We'd love to see a review from you on Apple Podcasts. And yeah, feel free to engage with Caitlin on Twitter. Caitlin, thanks so much for joining us. 